In the closing months of 63 BCE, Marcus Tullius Cicero stood before the Senate of Rome and confronting his enemy Catiline, uttered perhaps the most famous opening lines of political oratory. Quo usque tandem abutare Catilina, patientia nostra. Thus began the first of four speeches against Catiline that turned the Republic against him and saved it, at least for a generation. Political speech is incredibly potent. In the mouths of some, it elevates our best nature. In others, it nourishes our darkest thoughts. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on political oratory and rhetoric. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the City Politics Podcast. Uh, Constantine, back in the saddle once more. We're going to be talking about political oratory today and the importance of rhetoric. Uh, Are you excited? I am very excited. Yeah. Uh, And this is a topic that you've got a lot of time for. I mean, this is something that you do research on, and we are really really lucky today to be joined by Dennis Glover. Dennis is an academic, newspaper columnist, policy advisor, a speechwriter to Australia's most senior political, business, and community leaders. An often outspoken political commentator, his books include An Economy is Not a Society, The Art of Great Speeches, and Orwell's Australia. And on top of that, he is also the author of two novels, Factory 19 and The Last Man in Europe. Dennis, that resume makes me feel exhausted just saying it. It's amazing. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, guys, for having me on. It's a delight to be here. Great. So we're going to do what we always do. We're going to start off with our segments. And the first one is mine. It's ripped shamelessly from the pages of Reddit. It's explain it like I'm five. So, Dennis, what is political oratory, broadly speaking? Well, I think it's a bit more than just having a political conversation. It's sort of a, I call it a piece of political performance, you know, designed to convince or impress people. And, um, you know, if we go back to the origins of it, I think the Greeks and the Romans would tell us that there were three types. One one is forensic oratory, which is to make a case, especially in court, the sort of thing Cicero, you know, was famous for. Um, The second is deliberative, and that's to make a a political speech um, in a parliament or assembly or or some such. And the third is display rhetoric. And that's an, it's a sort of in a formal sort of a formal speech with all the bells and whistles on, you know, to impress people, impress them something about, about yourself, about your character, what you believe in, to advance yourself, you know. So they're the sort of, they're the three main things that I think oratory are. Thanks so much. And the second question I've got might be drawn from your sort of political experience. You know, what does a speechwriter do? Uh, you know, beyond the obvious thing that's in the name. Politicians, especially, but also business people that, that you write for, they're too busy to write their own speeches. One of my um, clients, who was a, um, a Labor Party politician, told me once that he had, he once had to give, I think, 14 separate sort of events in one day. Some of them were just a few minutes here and there, but also two or three large speeches. People in public life simply don't have the time to write speeches. So, they hire people like me to do it for them. So, you know, you're really working with someone to try and um, show them in their best light and and help them win an argument, not by putting words in their mouth so much as listening to them about what they what they want to say and helping them say it most effectively. Great, thanks. I think that really sets us up. Uh, I already have questions coming into my head, sort yeah. of like 
Why do we get somewhat shocked when we find out that politicians have speechwriters? But that's something that we're going to have to save for our bigger conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to pass yeah. you over to Constantine uh, to do the crystal ball. Constantine, take it away. All right. Thanks so much, David. Uh, so I'm going to ask Dennis 10 questions, and they require a yes or no answer. And then after that, we're going to elaborate on that and unfold it all in more detail later on. So question number one. The craft of political oratory is like nuclear weaponry. Both need to be strictly controlled so they don't fall in the wrong hands. Yes or no? Yes. Question number two. The rise of artificial intelligence will cause the decline of political oratory. Yes or no? No. Question number three. The rise of social media will cause the decline of political oratory. Yes or no? No. no. Question number four. In a decade or so, machines will be the best public speakers. No. Great speeches are made by circumstances rather than the person holding the speech. Yes. Question number six. It is a sign of a healthy society when the craft of political oratory flourishes. Yes. Question number seven. In a perfect world, political speeches would rely exclusively on what Aristotle called logos, that is the strength of the argument, and ethos, the credibility of the speaker, instead of pathos, the ability of the speaker to rouse an audience? No. Question number eight. Good politicians should focus on representing the interests of their constituents instead of holding big speeches. No. Does the ability to speak and persuade, which only few people have, undermine equal democratic deliberation? Yes. Question number 10. Is Donald Trump a great political speaker? Yes. Let's start with the last one, maybe. You said that Donald yeah. Trump is a great political speaker. Why would you say so? Well, I didn't say he's a great human being, a great political speaker, because he's incredibly effective at, at, at wowing an audience um, and getting people to follow him. I got a lot of flack. When my book came out, I got a lot of flack from some people, especially from, um, from um, you know, Jewish readers who who were a bit aghast that I said that Adolf Hitler was a, a great speaker. And by that, I wasn't endorsing anything that he said. All I was doing was pointing out that he went from being a, a street corner orator, mob orator, you know, who would, you know, dime a dozen um, in Germany in, in the 1920s and early 30s to, you know, to taking over the, not only his party, but, but Germany and most of Europe. And, um, and mainly it came because he, he knew how to work a crowd. He knew the arts of the darker arts of speech writing. So, and I think in some ways Donald Trump's the same. When you see him up, up uh, on the stage in front of his rallies, um, getting across those sort of uh, appealing to the dark parts of, of, our, of our psyche and our emotions um, to win people over, he's really doing something that, you know, orators have been doing for thousands of years. And he's very good at it. And, uh, you know, the results was it got him elected as president. Without, without those big rallies, I don't think he would have made it. Yeah, I mean, it really seems to be the signature of his politics are these sort of big, big rallies where he talks for a long time. But I think it's very interesting from sort of a speechwriting point of view. Yeah. You know, can you imagine being Donald Trump's speechwriter? I, I, I don't think he sticks to scripts very well, uh, does he? He seems to be very... Uh, extemporaneous compared to some of the sort of people who I picture in my mind when thinking of yeah. great orators, you know, like your John F. Kennedy's uh, or your Ronald Reagan's, right? Uh, they weren't very off the cuff. Yeah, he's not eloquent in the sense that, um, you know, Obama or Kennedy's or Churchill were, 
but um, that doesn't mean he's not effective. Um, I think a certain type of educated audience wants that sort of classical eloquence, um, whereas the people that he's after um, who are angry and want to get even with society are after more guttural ways of thinking. And this is exactly how Hitler approached his audiences, which was um, how can I understand their psyche and win them over? And he knew exactly how to do it. He was like a, you know, a maestro. He knew exactly how to, how to reach into the darknesses of their soul and, and grab that emotion out and put it and turn it into his own power. It's, it's, it's interesting finding the parallels in history. You know, Trump reminds me of, you know, someone like, uh, you know, the Gracchi in ancient Rome, yeah. at least from sort of the perspective of, of, of a Cicero type, someone who's sort of whipping yeah. up the mob uh, through simply the power of words which I think sort yeah. of is a good way of transitioning into that first question that Constantine asks, you know, political oratory, you agree that it's like a nuclear weapon. What's so dangerous about it? Just how incredibly effective it can be. Um, Hitler is the greatest example, you know, as I said before, just a, you know, a, a really incredibly unimpressive human being, leader of a ragtag little political party. Before you know it, he's the head of Germany and leading the world to, into absolute disaster. I guess the thing about that is political oratory is incredibly dangerous in the wrong hands, but there's no way that you can abolish it. You can't say, well, it's not right. You know, Donald Trump, you're not a nice person. You can't speak. Um, you have to counter him. You have to, you have to counter him with effectiveness. And in the 1940s, Hitler was countered by Churchill. You know, we'll fight them on the beaches. He, he managed to convince the West to fight on and whilst you know a lot of that was done of course it wasn't to do with speeches you know it's to do with spitfires and hurricanes and the battle of britain and so forth um it was only by signaling his intentions to fight to fight on that um the world kept going against hitler so um when you come up against a force like trump or hitler you have to hit them with an equal and opposite force of eloquence in our times i mean this might be a bit of a silly uh yeah. I, I don't want to use false equivalence here but uh if uh, churchill uh, is uh, uh you know churchill and hitler is one pair um where a sort of a, a counterforce is necessary against that 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 force of oratory is then is the, the ukrainian president the, the same force to um to to vladimir putin right now yeah well putin isn't very eloquent i mean putin's power doesn't rest on his oratory it's not a there's no sense of democracy in Russia anymore, I think. Not even the sense of manipulated populist-type democracy. Um, it's just, it seems to be sort of straight autocracy. You know, that vision of Putin sitting, you know, miles away from the other end of the table or with his generals, you know, 20 metres away in the room, you know, he, he comes across as sort of an old-fashioned, an old-fashioned autocrat dictator, whereas Vladimir Zelensky was, you know, very popularly elected and has has to, in, in some senses, has to use oratory as the one thing that his greatest weapon against the, the, the massively numerically superior Russian army, which is to convince not only his people to fight on, but the world to support him. So in, in some senses, it's the, it's the most important weapon that he has in his armory. One of the things that's really sort of struck me about the current crisis in uh, Eastern Europe is how effective Zelensky has been at communications uh, and not mm. just through traditional forms, right? You know, standing up and from say the Council of Europe and giving a speech, but, you know, getting on social media and really mm. connecting to people through new technology, which 
I guess goes to sort of the question about uh, social media causing a decline, uh, which I think a lot of people might have thought that was true uh, a, a few years ago, what with Trump and social media and the reduction of discourse. But Zelensky seems to have really effectively harnessed new technology for political communication. Is this part of why you, you don't think social media is going to cause a decline in political oratory? Exactly. What the, what the social media has done, I think, is um, in the, just like the internet, you know, 20 years ago, social media has made the whole world the political forum. You know, in the old day, you know, this idea of forum, you know, the audience in, um, in the forum Romanum in Rome was a defined geographical area, you know, several hundred metres, you know, in length and 100 metres wide. Um, we've all been probably been to Rome and seen it. But now the whole world is the forum. So you can reach, you know, billions and billions of people. And this is what Zelensky has done, not just um, by making, you know, in the, the YouTube age, of making a speech in front of an audience and having lots of people watch it, he's starting to use the social media as a way of making short speeches and connecting with the people of the world. And I think the really interesting thing about it for me is that he doesn't seem to be particularly eloquent in the sense of Obama is eloquent. He doesn't get up there and, you know, there aren't the grand rhetorical flourishes. It's a very simple and direct and plain way of speaking. And what lies behind its, its success is ethos, is his character. He's able to show himself as the brave little guy standing up for the people of the world against the evil tyrants. And, you know, there's a lot of history of that in oratory. So, for instance, think of Henry V and in Shakespeare, once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, or close up this wall with our English dead. You know, and then there's that that great speech that is that that's uh, the Ashencore speech, is essentially what Zelensky's doing with grand rhetorical flourishes, but Zelensky's doing it by showing that he's every man and just showing he's got um, guts and bravery prepared to put his life on the line. And that's where the power of that speech comes from rather than the actual words. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting insight. It really explains sort of something that, that I was reading the other day. I was mm. uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s reaction to Zelensky's sort of social media appearances and he took him to task for wearing a T-shirt. Uh, and <laughs> my brain was just like, does he want him to be wearing Prada in a war zone, right? You know, it's, it, it's a complete mismatch from how the sort of communication should unfold. Uh, but it's funny that it doesn't touch some people, that some people don't really understand that you need to suit your message to the circumstances in which they're being delivered. Uh, yeah. And Zelensky seems to have really mastered the, the war zone communication. And often done from, you know, underground in a bunker, which, you know, gives you another dimension to what it's all about. There's no better place to hold a speech like that than in a, than in a bunker where you have to be because they're going to kill you. So, you know. So we've had Ronald Reagan, Adolf Hitler. We've had Donald Trump. In your book, you give a, uh, you, you also mentioned Sarah Palin uh, as a great political yeah. speaker. You probably got yeah. some flag for that as well, I suppose. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Zelensky. Um, Cicero, um, we have them all, and we have, uh, we've already had ethos, pathos, um, uh, and logos. Um, so there's lots of different ways of, uh, of doing great speeches. There's lots of different people that we can identify as great speakers. And uh, so there seems to be lots of variety in, in what you can do and still be a great speaker. But if you put your finger on it, what really, what makes a great speaker? Uh, uh, you know, what, what, what do all of these people have in common, despite all of the obvious differences? the guts to give it a try and to take on a crowd it's very easy for politicians to 
um, not take a risk when they're speaking and to just be very straight and boring. But I think the great orator um, in some ways trains themselves from an early age to be able to influence a crowd um, and to learn how to read a crowd and to take risks in trying to get a response from the crowd. So, for instance, you mentioned Sarah Palin. Um, now, I, I wouldn't endorse Sarah Palin as a, as a president, um, presidential candidate. I'm not sure she's particularly, let's say, intellectually intelligent sort of person. But when she was uh, up against Obama during that first Obama election, she was the vice presidential running mate against him. Uh, she showed that she just, she listened to speechwriters who crafted some great lines for her and she knew how to just thump them out on the stage in front of people and got this sort of amazing response. So watching them at work, her and Obama was like watching some jewel. It was almost like um, watching what was going on in the, in the forum Romanum, you know, um, between uh, Mark Antony and, and, and Brutus during, you know, after the, after the death of Julius Caesar, you know, just, just sort of like thumping it out, using the same rhetorical techniques that they used and that Shakespeare used to represent them in the great play. So I'd say part of it is just having the balls to try it on and try and win people over, to take a risk. Then if you need the balls and you don't have them, I suppose, yeah. we can program machines to have balls, I suppose. I mean, if I want to take yeah. that image yeah. further. But you said machines are never going to, in a decade or so, we said, but you said machines yeah. are not going to be better public speakers than humans. Um, so how is that? I don't, think a, I don't think a machine can read the crowd, really, or get across character in the way that a real person could ever do. I mean, I suppose it could get a lot better, um, the, the AI could get to the stage where they could. Um, I mean, I know now that they can write sports articles, you know, baseball or cricket commentary or something like that for the newspapers, but I, I really doubt it. I think there's something intrinsically human. There's something about the mind has to be working at full pace to keep trying to read the audience, to um, to respond um, to the to the vibe in the room, to, to the feel and of it. That's the way that a great speech works, constantly on the podium, adjusting to the to the audience's response, um, probing, trying to win them over, knowing exactly the right moment to hit, to, to, to get that um, emotional response from them. Incredibly complex thing that I think only a human brain is capable of at the moment. Yeah, I've, I've often thought, you know, will I see in my lifetime sort of a, a artificial intelligence simulation of JFK address the Democratic National Convention? And to me, I don't think it would ever work for exactly the reason that you've just said. There can't yeah. be any give and take between the audience and the artificial construct. Yeah. Or if we reach a point where there is give and take, we're probably in a very different uh, world than the one we live in right now. And that makes me really think about the importance of spontaneity in political oratory. And you know, the big yeah. example that I think of is you know the beginning of the first uh, Catiline oration by Cicero. You know. How long are you going to abuse our patients, Catiline? Uh, which, you know, allegedly was off the cuff, right? And he launches into probably yeah. the best political speech uh, in Western history. And it makes me think, well, you know, what happens when politicians really sort of, you know, perhaps are too spontaneous uh, and it goes a bit wrong? You know, Joe Biden this week said uh, apparently spontaneously that Putin needs to be removed from power. So there does seem to be this you know, huge risk of speaking off the cuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about um, who was the American, the, the Democratic presidential candidate, Howard, um, you know. The, Howard Dean, right? Howard oh, Dean. Yeah, I was thinking famous, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The scream um, of Howard Dean. And um, that sort of brought him down. So there's a risk, you know, and sometimes it can be absolutely catastrophic. It sort of ended his candidacy. He was probably never going to win anyway, but it, it, it prematurely ended um, his candidacy. Life's full of risks. Sometimes it comes off, sometimes it doesn't for politicians. And uh, But if you never have a go, you'll never know. So what about the, the ups and downs of oratory? I mean, we, we spoke about sort of um, the circumstances, making great speeches, and uh, you agreed. And you said, um, which I, I thought was interesting for a speechwriter to say, Yeah, the circumstances uh, are what make great speeches, oh, yeah. right? Rather than, and I'm, you know, probably the person holding the speech also has something to do with it, but it's the circumstances have a, have a big effect on it. What kind of circumstances yeah. make for not just sort of the, the sort of the, the, of having a great speech, like a singular event, but for the, the art of oratory more generally to flourish in a society? What circumstances are those? Look, it's easy to technically make, in a technical sense, make a great speech at a family wedding or the opening of a new toilet block at the local municipal library or something like that. But what gives it its importance is the moment, the importance of the moment in which you make it and, and um, whether or not you can seize that moment and really make that something that will last. So, for instance, you think of those speeches that Winston Churchill made in 1940 when he just becomes prime minister, you know, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them on the landing grounds, etc. You know, never in the field of human uh, human endeavor has so much been owed by so many to so few. Those great speeches. I think what happened there was that Churchill understood the importance of the moment and put supreme effort into crafting a great speech that would last throughout history. And I think that's where a lot of politicians come unstuck. They don't recognize that the moment is there to be seized, and so they make it just a pretty pedestrian speech they don't seize the moment for their whole career to really to really make it and um you know you think think again about um say obama back in the in early 2000s obama's just a member of the illinois state legislature no one had ever heard of him but there was a idea around that he could make a good speech and then he he did a nominating speech at the democratic convention and wild everyone and four years later And he's able to defeat the Clinton machine to win the presidency. Extraordinary. And he did it at the moment of the American presidency. He was able to put it together and make a great speech. As a speechwriter, in some ways, you're always looking for that important moment to come along where you can really wow an audience and, and, and really seize hold of the moment to, 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 to show how good you are and how good your, your speaker is. On top of that, in, in your book, you... Um... You described the, the intricacies of, uh, of Roman politics uh, sort of at the cusp of the, the Roman Republic uh, and the, the decline of democracy in, in Rome. And uh, you, 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 you connect that to, um, to the art of um, uh, speeches, not just the art of speeches, but more sort of the, the having a fertile ground for oratory. Um, so in addition to having like singular events, um, 
yeah. um, where you know great speeches are, are possible and you know you say some politicians just maybe they don't have the balls to seize that moment or maybe they don't see the moment yeah. whatever it is yeah. but then there's also sort of more sort of structural conditions i guess yeah. within which um sort of um, you know oratory flourishes what, what would those be yeah. in your mind in stalin's soviet union there weren't that many remembered speeches because if you made one you got you um you know you got a bullet in the back of the head um, you have to have the conditions of um, free speech um, in order to be able to, to make a great speech. So, so naturally, the great speeches are going to be made in times of political freedom or during a revolutionary moment, you know, uh, someone like Lenin jumping on the back of a, an armoured car and making a speech at the Finland station or something like that. So the conditions um, are absolutely vital um, for making... A great speech, but I think one of the underestimated things also about great speeches is is fads. They go in and out of fashion. You know, I think the speeches probably went into decline after the the Second World War, after the death of Roosevelt, and then um, Kennedy um, revives them. You know, you get Ted Sorensen, he's a great speechwriter, who's a studied history and rhetoric, and turns him and then um, finds a great voice um, in Kennedy. And speech writing becomes sexy again, you know, and um, and it happens again um, in Britain with Tony Blair. Tony Blair, I'd, I'd seen Tony Blair speak, and he, I think he was a really great orator. He made speaking sexy again. Um, I think Obama obviously um, did it. For a while thereafter, Obama became president, you know, as a speechwriter. It was a boom time for speechwriters because everyone wanted to make a great rhetorical speech. Whereas I think now with Selinsky, it's going to be different. I think the speech speeches are going to be more direct and down to earth. You know, the, the style will change. So, so, so there's that too. So there's the, the ground has to be laid. You have to have the ability to make the speech, but you also people have to want to hear them. Speaking of down to earth, I'm going to sort of divert yeah. the conversation a little bit because as well as being a scholar of political speeches, you're also a scholar of George Orwell. Uh, who yeah. I teach to my, my first year students. Uh, oh. One of the things that I give them to read always is politics and the English language, uh, which is, you know, the guide to write. And he is really sort of a man who advocated plain speaking, right? You know, yeah. uh, never use a three syllable word when you've got a two syllable word that will do. So I was wondering sort of how these scholarly interests intersect. What does Orwell have to tell us about political oratory? Well, Orwell's interested in oratory is, isn't just about um, the correct use of the English language. Um, it's also about the truth. Orwell makes us aware of politicians trying to evade telling us the truth in, in sneaky ways by using, um, you know, bad language, political language, jargon, ideology to get around the truth. And so um, in, in 1984, there's a famous scene where um, the party orator jumps up, is up on the stage making a sort of a screeching, howling speech against, um, I think, East Asia. And then halfway through, he's handed a note and all of a sudden they're at war with, with Eurasia. He jumps straight from one, from, from advocating war with East Asia to advocating war on the side of East Asia against Eurasia. Orwell was was able to watch, you know, dictators at work and see how they spoke in order to um, lie to people and manipulate them and mislead them. And so he, he wanted us to be able to look at what people say and cut through to see, that, you know, to make sure that they were telling the truth, to, to figure out how they were lying to us. 
So this goes back to um, the nuclear weaponry question at the beginning. Yeah. How can you how can you manage to to you know to have great speeches, a time in which oratory flourishes, but um, where people sort of don't fall into the trap of not saying the truth when they speak, or to 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 sort of to to have to have their way with that kind of approach to 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 giving speeches. What what can we do about that? You really just have to be on your guard. You know, there's nothing fair about politics. It's it's a tough business. And you have to fight fire with fire. So if somebody is is trying to manipulate the crowd, whatever you have to you have to get into the forum and and, and fight with them. Um, grab the stage. You can't just let them do it and say, um, "Oh, look, it's not it's not fair." He's he's you know telling the truth. He's not telling the truth. You just simply have to to, to get in and start punching. And I think sometimes you know I think a lot of people. Um, make the mistake of thinking of saying things like, um, "Look, uh, we don't want all this appeal to the emotion. We don't want any of this. Just, just give us the facts, and we'll make the decision." But I think what what the, the thing there is that uh, the human human beings are not just rational, calculating machines. They have an emotional capacity, and to try and win an argument in politics without appealing to people's emotions may be. Uh, a noble thing to do, but it's probably doomed to fail, especially when you're up against somebody who's trying to manipulate the crowd. So you really have to fight fire with fire. Yeah, I think that's one of the lessons that wasn't learned from the sort of Blair and Clinton eras, uh, which, you know, in political science, you know, we focus on, you know, the importance of triangulation and the third way. And, you know, if you have the right focus group, you'll be able to get the right policies that will get you elected. But what people forget is that Clinton and Blair could both deliver those policies to an audience in a way that they found very compelling. Uh, so when you take mm-hmm. away that delivery, the policies yeah. just don't speak for themselves. And one of the reasons, well, at least in my opinion, why Trump was so successful in America is that there wasn't uh, you know, someone who could match him. There was no real sort of counterpoint to his Mark Antony character uh, on the American stage uh, because you know, Joe Biden is many things, but a great political orator Probably not one of them, uh, yeah. but we did win. Think, so we have to say yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, and I think Hillary Clinton is a good example there because she's the ultimate triangulator from that Clinton machine. You know that it relied heavily on polling and complicated policy announcements and so forth to try and buy off little sections of the crowd. But she wasn't a great and convincing orator and couldn't get across any sort of um, sense of really who she was, any sense of genuineness. She came across as a phony. It looked like it was all far too manipulated and researched and not real and so i think she had a she had a really difficult time being up against um trump um i think biden was lucky in that he came up against trump after trump had had to some extent been discredited by actually having been in power but also biden had his own i think his own sort of charm you know that that the pennsylvania blue collar thing he could appeal you know to to that old democrat party in a sense because he was old and he came from that era and still represented it yeah. i think part of what you're saying there is something that we see and that i see in my work and also in the the kind of sort of um political consulting that we're trying to do uh is uh is is the the, the tri- triangulation that you mentioned i think it's it's an aspect of politics that will not disappear and it will get only stronger with you know the increase in technology but i think uh you know you do need the 
you do need the delivery and the, the passion and the sort of the credibility. I think you need the credibility as an individual to, to sell uh, whatever you're trying to sell, if you want to use that word sell. But what I wanted to add is that uh, I think you also need a core of values. Uh, you need a core of values. And they can be values that we might despise if we could, got to talking about these values. Um, uh, or there might be values that we, we cherish. But what I find uh, in, in, in my work is very much about the, the logos aspect. It's about sort of dissecting arguments and seeing how people respond to arguments. And, uh, and this is, I try to contextualize that, of course. But what I see is that um, people respond very positively uh, to um, to arguments that are plausible, to arguments that that make sense, which doesn't mean that they cannot also be swayed to to you know to fall to the dark side, so to speak. But these are this is the capacity that humans have. But on top of all of that, which is which which can be formalistic, I think, uh, is the is is the need for, uh, and I really strongly believe in that, is the need to to inject a dose of values uh, into into your uh, into your speeches. And so that's that's something that I think. Uh, uh, is, is very important. Yeah. I think we're seeing a, um, a revolt against technocracy, you know, that overtook social democratic politics around the world. There was an excess of that perhaps um, in the later stages of Blair and during Brown's um, leadership of the British Labor Party. Um, certainly here in Australia, the, the Labor Party leaders became dull technocrats uh, who, um, adverse to any sorts of risk, who were afraid to discuss philosophy who were um, completely in the thrall of their marketers and um, pollsters. And they just, people just um, seem to, they seem to have no credibility whatsoever. People just didn't think that they were genuine and that this made them an easy bait for conservatives who have been energised um, into, after Margaret Thatcher's era, I think, into, into, seeing that the power of directness, direct speech, and the power of, of popular values can give a politician. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, but perhaps we shouldn't be too hard on our sort of centrist triangulators, because I was just thinking of, you know, someone who came across as extremely authentic in politics, uh, but was remarkably unsuccessful. And that was Jeremy Corbyn in this country. You know, you'd be hard pressed to think of someone who was more uh, authentic to their values, whether you agree with them or, or, or not. Uh, but I'm trying to remember sort of a, a great line from Jeremy Corbyn. And I'm coming up with a blank. And I think, you know, that, that sort of shows us that perhaps authenticity isn't quite enough to make a sort of a great political communicator. You need to be able to be something more than authentic. Uh, but well, what, he quoted Shelley effectively, didn't he? he? You know, that that great, you know, mask of anarchy, um, poem um, of Shelley's. He remember he he quoted that at the Gladstone Festival up on stage, and he and he started doing it at his rallies all the time. And you know, reaching back to the beginnings of the British Labour Party and the radicalism that led to its um, establishment and so forth. But you, you know, you also have to be relevant to the times. And I think that's why it's probably bad to um, typologize Blair as just a triangulating centrist, because he really believed that what he was doing was taking social democratic politics and modernizing it for for the era and to make his party electable again so for him it was a was a great crusade you know to make his party electable again um, so that can it could do good um, and it happened to chime in um, with um, where the electorate was going at the time but you can't you can't be totally at odds with the electorate and and be eloquent and still expect to win
let's talk a bit about the the, the yeah. relation between the the writer and the speaker. I mean, we yeah. can imagine Churchill sitting down and actually holding his pen and his, his whiskey glass in the other hand and, you know, thinking about uh, speech and actually writing it. Uh, obviously, he was a great writer as well as a, a great speaker. Um, but then, as you said, Dennis, there's, um, you know, there's the, you know, the, the run of the mill politician who has uh, 14 speaking engagements uh, every yeah. day uh, and uh, he or she cannot uh, write uh, all of those uh, speeches, even, you know, small ones. Uh, but then they might also, even for that, run of the mill politician there might be that one moment where she or he needs a sort of a good speech um so as far as the speech writer is concerned in in your book you you use this very apt uh, sort of uh, uh, example where you say well they you know speech writers can you know be like carpenters who make good chairs and then good chairs are chairs that you know you can sit on them and that's fine but really mm -hmm. great speech writers they make a chair that could be exhibited uh, at the Guggenheim Museum right uh, yeah. and then there's yeah. also maybe another image or another example where a speech writer could be thought of as a composer of classical music and someone else is performing his uh, is performing his symphony. Um, is it more like that, or is it more like the speechwriter as a typist and scribe? Um, and, and how do you see that now? I mean, you you, you wrote the book. The book yeah. is uh, you know a few years. How how would you judge that now with a little bit of hindsight after the book and and yeah. after you know many yeah. many many more years of experience? Yeah, I've been in all sorts of situations with people I've written for with um, you know really disappointing politicians who um, won't listen to a speechwriter. And treat you as a typist end up um, not doing themselves justice because they're not as good at writing as they think they are. And I've worked for um, other people um, who will listen to you um, quite a lot. I think the ideal situation for the speechwriter to be in is to have a really good one-on-one -on -one relationship with the person that you're writing for. I think that's why Ted Sorensen did so well with the Kennedys because, as he points out, he wasn't just um, some speechwriter off in the West Wing. He was the person who every day had a one-on-one -on -one relationship um, and had to brief the president. Um, and they got on really well and understood each other. The best situation to be in is when you have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with them. Um, when they have a speech, you don't go through their bureaucrats, that you don't go through the department, you don't go through their advisors. You just get them to pick up the phone and call you and tell you what three things they want to say in the speech. What do you want to get across? What point do you want to make? And after a while, when you develop confidence um, that you have their best interests at heart, you can get them to go out on a limb and take a risk and say something funny um, to engage the audience and take a risk in trying to um, grab the audience's emotions and go with it. Okay, it, sometimes it doesn't work, but you've got to know them really well because you've got to know what they think. You can't tell them what to think, but you have to tell them how to express it. And that takes a while working with someone to build up confidence and in each other. And that's the best sort of relationship to have for sure. I, I think that's a, that's a very, very, very important point, that almost symbiotic relationship. But from the, the, the relation between Sorensen and, and Kennedy, it seems like yeah. even though they were a sort of, um, you know, it was symbiotic in a sense, um, the, the speechwriter in this relationship wasn't used for policy formulation, even though he was intimately um, involved in the, the whole political process. Yeah. And I'm saying this because yeah. I've also seen uh, that sort of scenario where great speechwriters, a great speechwriter and a great politician 
uh, just didn't match because the speechwriter was sort of quote unquote used for the wrong purposes, I suppose. And then yeah. he was, in this case, it was a he, uh, he was used for uh, at the stage of policy formulation much too early in yeah. the process. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Have you seen anything like that too? Look, in modern politics, politicians are surrounded by um, marketers and media advisors who aren't actually very interested in the policy. So if you're a speechwriter, you tend to be uh, have a lot of deep interest in history. Um, you tend to um, be interested in policy and you tend to care a lot about the job that you have. And so often um, you end up being the person who provides the ideas as well, which is probably telling you something about how the politician's office isn't doing its job and isn't probably heading towards victory because they haven't really figured out what they stand for. If the speechwriter is having to um, tell them what they stand for whilst writing the speech, you know, there's something going wrong in your machine. I, I always say to clients, um, look, you know, I can write it for you, but I can't make it up for you. You have to tell me what you believe so I can help you express it. And oftentimes a, a dying politician will be dying exactly because they haven't sat down and figured out exactly what they believe. They've got into a position of leadership in their party, but they've never actually gone away and figured out what they stand for. And I always tell people whenever I, whenever I start working for them is, you know what you should really do at the start of this? You should go, um, you should go to, the, um, to a friend's beach house for a weekend, take a pad and a pencil and, and, and set down exactly what you believe in and what you want to achieve in politics. Because often they're so busy winning internal party ballots and fighting factional battles and so forth that they just simply don't know what they want to say. And that's, that's a big issue for them. I have two very quick questions I want to, yeah. I want to put before, uh, before we wrap up. The first one is, so who do you think is the best political speaker in the world today? And the other one is a bit inside baseball. Who is the best political speaker in Australian history? In the world today? Well, look, I, I really don't think you can go past Zelensky um, in Ukraine because he has all of the things that we've discussed. He has the moment. Um, he has the character. Um, he has a great cause um, to fight for. Um, and it's working. You know, he's galvanised the whole world to support his country. So, you know, in a sense, um, he success, you know, is showing just how, how good he has been. Um, Donald Trump is still probably capable of using rhetoric um, to, to maybe help him win the, the next election in America. But I think he's probably, I'm just not sure he has it in him again. I think people have seen through his shtick and um, it, may, it may not work the next time. Um, in Australia, look, we don't have uh, a, a tradition of great oratory in Australia. Australia is very much a pragmatic society and its politicians are like that. We've had great ones in the past. Um, Gough Whitlam, the great Labor leader from the 1960s and 70s, um, was the last one who spoke, um, you know, like the Kennedys, and he had a, a speechwriter who admired Ted Sorensen and turned him into, into a sort of a Kennedy-type figure. Um, but the ones that we have at the moment, the Prime Minister is an interesting character. He's a very um, religious man. He knows how to engage with ordinary people and their fears and concerns. He's not a great speaker though um, the labor party leader at the moment is a very genuine he's a, he's, an, he's a good friend of mine he's a very very genuine character and has a romantic sort of revolutionary past as a student politician but he's never been a great tub thumping orator 
um, very, very much a technocratic politician. So I'd say in Australia, it's it's just, you know, same as same as it ever was. There are no really great orators there sort of stirring people up in the main parties, at least. Well, I'm, I'm Canadian, so I sympathize because we don't have yeah. we have a similar pragmatic tradition. Occasionally one will pop up, but this is not a sort of deeply embedded into, into our democratic culture the way it is in, say, America or, or Great Britain. One of the reasons why is, is we don't have the opportunities. The forums aren't there. The culture isn't there. So in America, um, to make it as a politician, you have to win primary votes, primary campaigns, and you have to speak in front of large crowds and have to fill whole stadium, you know, during the election presidential election campaign to win the presidency. To, the, the route to power in parliamentary systems like Australia's and Canada's is, is getting the numbers in the back rooms. That's how it works. And so, yeah, so our politicians are never trained from their earliest days to win over a room. And so, and if you don't learn it early, you're probably never going to learn it. And, and, and there's also historical experience, right? I mean, uh, you, you mentioned Hitler. Obviously, he... Uh... He, he was the reason for why in post-World War II Germany, you know, rousing speeches were nothing that uh, you wanted to see from politicians, um, at least not be beyond, uh, you know, beyond a certain sort of a, a scope and extent. So, you know, there's that historical experience, but, um, you know, the, the things might, might change as well. Um, so in Australia, there might be a, a future for, for great uh, political orators uh, getting on stage at some point in time, or in Canada, or in Germany yeah. again, right? Yeah, it's when there's a hunger for change, I think, um, and someone new comes along who can say something that captures the interest of the crowd, and then people start listening. Um, that's the thing. So, you know, we went through eras of modernization, like, you know, the, the early 1970s, where change was possible, whereas now I think that people are more sullen. They don't want um, to be roused. They want to be reassured. They want to be told that their taxes aren't going to go up, that... Um, you know, that their housing assets aren't going to fall in value, that their, that their pensions are going to maintain their value and so forth. Um, there's a sullenness um, in the audience. It's only in, in some ways, it's it, some ways it's the audience that makes the great speaker. That audience has to be there. And when they're prepared to listen, well, then you can talk to them. And with that, we bring our oration about political oratory to a close. I'd like to thank Dennis Glover for joining us. Be sure to visit his website, dennisglover.net, with two N's. And if you're interested in learning more about this week's topic, pick up his excellent book, The Art of Great Speeches, from Cambridge University Press. I couldn't put it down, and I get easily distracted by shiny things. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at TheCityPolitics, at ConVoss, Constantine's got a new handle, and of course, I'm at GDBlunt, one step closer to that blue tick, y'all. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Oh my god, did we just release an episode on time? I need to lie down. I've got the vapors. Bye, everyone. <laughs>